0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission
1: is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Um, at this time, I'm going to read today's scripture. This is from 2 Timothy two fourteen through 19 Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good. Only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Himenaeus Hymen- and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from inequity. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 22-23. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Second Timothy chapter three verses one through seven. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, "'without self-control, brutal, not loving good, "'treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, "'lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, "'having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. "'Avoid such people, for among them are those "'who creep into households and capture weak women.' Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
0: Thank you, Mary Claire, and thank you, Hannah. That was awesome. Um, so good to see you again. Uh, if I missed uh, saying hello, my name is Stacy Croft. I'm the uh, lead pastor here. Uh, at Christ Press Music Row. And I hope I get to meet you if I haven't already. uh, I get to email. I know um, some of you have um, in... Emails are in the air right now about grabbing coffee or Zoom or something, right? Zoom has become like the new coffee, uh, right? Uh, The new golf course, Zoom, right? As Michael Scott would say. Uh, So would love to get to know you and uh, meet you and get to um, uh, hear your story at some point. Hey, just so you know, um, next week is our uh, five-year anniversary as a church. And we are so excited um, and thankful uh, to just celebrate God's faithfulness of what He has done. So next week, uh, a week from today, we're going to have a celebration. If you thought um, last week the neighborhood, or or, yeah, it was last Sunday, I think, uh, our neighborhood Sunday was uh, sweet. It was wonderful to bring in. This is going to be a a, a grand celebration that... um, Erin uh, has already uh, put together a lot with uh, her help with Erin and Jordan having just a few things it's going to be one service as, as we're doing we're going to continue one service outdoors at nine for now uh, and there's going to be gifts for everybody uh, and uh, pre-packaged, pre-packaged and safely put apart uh, fun treats uh, there's going to be live music afterwards uh, a balloon arch with, some, uh, with a, a fun photo booth there's going to be a lot going on so we, we hope you can join us uh, love for you to come and just celebrate Uh, with us just God's faithfulness uh, through so much, and it's been really a joy uh, and an honor for me to um, be your pastor and to be a part of this church and just celebrate with you what God has done and kind of get out of the way, Um, and thank you. Hey, I I, uh, was in sixth grade, and um, anytime you begin with that sixth grade, you feel all those feelings again, right? The awkwardness uh, I had, Um, and yes, it was, I remember going to one of my... um, Oh, what, what, It was like, I guess one of those dances, parties, something like that. And there was a cartoonist, speaking of, you know, balloon arches. There was one of those cartoonists where you could go and they draw a cartoon kind of, you know, of you. And I remember them drawing and he was like, what do you like to do? I was like, I, I like playing football. And he was like, okay. So he draws this profile of me and um, I remember him sketching it out and those kind of things and he makes this football bounce off my head and he writes, you know, my name's Stacy, a terror on the field, you know, and helmet here and pads here. But I remember looking at my face and going, is, is that really what my nose looks like? Like, is it that smashed in and like curved up? And do my eyes really look i don 't look like that like and I, I know it 's still at my i don 't know if my parents kept it for this reason, but it 's still at my parents house. I remember seeing it uh, a few months ago when we went to visit and i'm going, "Oh, what a horrible thing." And uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever had one of those before because what they do, right, is they they find a couple features. They draw, you know, something, but they find a couple features of you and they just really kind of like exacerbate them. And so you're just faced with like, oh, my ears, my nose, my eye, my head. What is wrong with me? Um, I remember even listening to this uh, every now and then, I'll listen to This American Life. It's an interesting podcast. And usually, the introduction is uh, really kind of funny. One was, Is this really what I look like? And it was all about that. It was all about people who make comments to you, face to face, or maybe a stranger, about some part of you. And you just are like, Really? My neck looks that way? You know, <laughs> those kind of things. But I'll I, I tell you, that is exactly the picture, though, of what it means for us when we have someone in mind that we like to tear down. You know, those moments where we kind of take someone, anyone in our life, maybe it's a group, and we think about a characteristic or an attribute or a thing that they've said, and we just exacerbate it and make it the thing or many, many things that we use to tear that person group, whoever they are, down and to the degree that we do that. And that's, that's actually the beautiful picture of what it means, a beautiful, not meaning beautiful like great, but like exact picture of how we tear people down. Isn't that what we do so well on Instagram? We're looking on our grid, we see those people that we kind of maybe have that kind of don't know relationship with, even if we are close to them, we find that thing in their picture and we just grind in our head. What is that thing, event, part of them, character flaw that we just want to continue to blow up so that we can continue to tear down. It's exactly what this passage is about, is how we overinflate. This is a letter that was written uh, by a man named Paul in the New Testament to a guy named Timothy, it's actually a, a letter from an older minister named Paul to a younger minister named Timothy on pa- um, how to pastor a church. This is actually considered uh, Paul's last will and testament in a way; it's like his last letter that he wrote. And so, there's a lot of relational, deep langu- language here. But if you notice, in particular in this one, there are names even mentioned. Notice that how relational it gets. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus. Uh, It talks about the workers not be ashamed, but uh, the relation flee youthful passions. There's this deep relational language in this. It's not like some rudimentary theological book. It's very written relational letter. And here's why. Because when we typically inflate or over-inflate the characteristics of someone that we want to tear down, isn't that what we want to do? We want to move them over here so we don't have to have that much relational capital with them because it makes it easier for us to destroy them. And it couldn't even be ourselves. Some of us are really good about tearing ourselves down. Many times that we tear others down, we tear them down because of what we want to tear ourselves down for. See, the church of Jesus Christ, what it's meant to do is actually to cause us to see ourselves for who we really are and then begin to to remedy the way that we tear others down that we can be a place that people can actually come and instead of the thing that's overinflated, notice if you think about the gospels, most of the gospel moments where Jesus encounters somebody, the people that are against Jesus caring for this outcast—be it uh, so, so, social, racial, sexual, whatever it may be—that most of the time, the, the people on the, the religious people on the other side, the Pharisees, are overinflated. Why would you want to be with this tax collector, this sinner? What are they doing? They're over-inflating. They're taking that characteristic that, that, that we wouldn't be, wouldn't be horrible to take a part of us that we hate or maybe that someone hates about us and just blow it up and that's what we are known for. That's what tears down. And yet the church is to be a place where we come in with those inflated things and are loved for it how do we become a church? How do we grow as a church that opposes things to tear down? How are we aware of those things so we can move further into uh, remembering who we are in Christ? So we're going to look at this, this passage in those two ways. We're going to look at what opposed, uh, how, what we need to oppose that tears down and kind of get into the, the roots of that, being real aware of our own drawing, so to speak, of who we are, which I hate doing. Um, and also, we're going to talk about just two quick things of how to remedy. Because next week, we're going to talk about contending for what builds up. So it's going to be like a hanging on at the end. You're going to be like, wait, how do we finish that? And then you've got to come back next week for part two. So opposing what tears down. The first thing you notice here when it starts is remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins its hearers. Words that ruin Words that tear down. In fact, it's interesting that the word here, quarrels, means word battles. It's almost like uh, words with friends, you know, on your phone. I don't know if you ever played that. Word battles. It's like you're battling it out with words, trying to beat the other person. But we know how words are damaging, right? Words are are far more powerful than we think they are, treat them that way. Because all the words that we grew up with are still the words that we replay in our heads, the, the, the old cassette tape, if you want to throw it back, the old digital thing in our head that we play back the word or phrase or thing that has defined us to work against. Words set in us and they ruin us. They're so powerful. They destroy lives. Think about words alone have started wars. They've ended and toppled empires. Words alone are so powerful to destroy all those things, more or less individuals, right? Sticks and stones, you know, the whole thing. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I don't know who made that up, but it is so not true. (laughs) I mean, who who said that? Because we think that's true, but it's not, because we know the words that hurt us. We know what sticks with us. So when, Paul, when Timothy was sent to, uh, when Paul was writing to Timothy, he was to pastor a church in Ephesus. i've mentioned Ephesus a little bit, but I want you to know what, what Ephesus really loved. Ephesus was the number one Roman city in the, in the Asian province. It was so wealthy, so commercial, so religious, it was powerful, beautiful. In fact, it was on the, on the water, and so when you pull in a, a big trade city for commercialism. If you pull in from the harbor all the way into the main city, it'd be like from uh, the river all the way to here, basically. There were columns lining the street. You could just, you felt the presence of greatness as you walked into Ephesus. Ephesus. It was a huge religious center. It had three different temples to Artemis, which is one of the big, uh, big gods that they worshiped. In fact, it was, you can read in, in Acts chapter 19 of how important this religious temple was. It was so important that they had an economy wrapped around it. So that when Paul and Timothy walked through there and even started speaking about Jesus, it started throwing the economy off. The whole city wrapped around this thing. It was powerful. It had so much money in it coming in and out of it. But it also had a real speaking center. There's a place called the, um, the Hall of Tyrannus where you could go and from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. there were just open lectures. So people would stand up and they would just discourse and they would speak. And Paul, rightly thinking, went, and it says for two years, he went into this hall and would speak along with everyone else. And he would begin to speak. So they took in words really powerfully. They knew the power of words in Ephesus. And this is why Paul is getting to them. He's saying, one of the biggest issues of this church is how they use their words to destroy one another. And it got into the church. And isn't that easy how it, does, how it happens? It's usually not like a big thing thrown in. It's usually the small cracks. Like if you were to walk around even on these sidewalks, you'd see every now and then that the sidewalk is separated a little bit. And you'd see just a little patch of grass or a weed or something that pops up. That didn't happen because it was just some big thing. It happened small over time. How could grass that we can pick up and tear and throw around separate concrete? It's because it begins small it germinates and it gets into those places. And without tending it, it begins to separate even some of what we would consider the most powerful and strong things, concrete. It does the same. It began to do that in the church and he had to Address it. He even goes on to say, "Here, it's like in verse 17. Their talk will spread like gangrene." You know, that's the only place. I mean, you read gangrene, you're like, "Okay, yuck." I mean, that's like the only place, by the way, in the Bible that I think gangrene is used. And I actually went back into, uh, I, I typed it in because I had it in my mind like what gangrene is, because people use that every now and then. I was like, "Okay, what what medically happens is in gangrene?" I'm gonna read this to you for you weak stomach folks. Just a reminder, gangrene happens when the tissues in your bodies die after a loss of blood caused by illness, injury, or infection. So it's a loss of blood. Okay, y'all know I like Shark Week. Some of you make fun of me for bringing it up at least once a year. So there was this one shark attack that I watched that was different than some of the others where this woman, and I won't tell you where because I'm sure you vacation there, um, was attacked by a shark, <clears throat> taken to the hospital, <clears throat> was actually sewn up, was you know, uh, taken care of in surgery. And literally within the week, her body, part of her leg here, was just not working. And it started turning gray. And she couldn't use it. And it, it was because when they did the surgery, they actually didn't reattach. They didn't work on the blood flow. So the rest of that area of her body, she lost what was just maybe a smaller portion of her body that was, was uh, uh, attacked and and unusable is now a much larger and it spread. And she had amputations because the lifeblood, the blood itself was not reattached. It was not put back into that part of the body. That's what gangrene does. So what words do is they begin to, in gangrene-wise, they begin to take the life out. So the in relationship, what happens is if those words are used, it begins to remove the life out of not just the individual, but the church itself. Here's the thing. People are watching. People are looking in. And where is the church going to address not just the larger cultural moments, but just how we love one another. If there are issues, and, and, and what, I, I, want, I want you to do like one small practice for me. Do this even up front before we even get going. I want you to think of the person, the group, or whatever it is that you love to over-characterize in your, in your life. I want you to get that person in your head. I want you to think about them. I want you to get that group in your mind that you just, every time you hear the name of this group, that it just something comes in your head and you just want to put them in their place or just kind of shake your head or roll your eyes. Do you have that in your head? I got mine. Because I'm not by my, you're not alone in this. What are we doing with those people or those groups? How are we taking the life out of what has been given life to us in the good news of the gospel? Words that are what? Good in light of the bad. Good news is spoken over us in light of the bad news that we believe. Is it that good? That it could come in and transform A body, right? This is why, how how interesting is this? That the church is called the body. This is not a, a joke that he uses gangrene that could destroy the body. What destroys a church? It's those little ways of taking the life. And the good news brings it in. How are we speaking good news to one another? Continuing to speak that, to bring in the character. You know, the next thing he says here though is he says this about controversies. Verse 23, he says I've nothing to do with foolish ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. It's not just false words, it's false truths. I know that a big phrase right now, many of you may even use it, sorry, is my truth, your truth. People use that a lot today. There's been a lot of talk about even using that phrase, how how helpful it can be. I don't want to uh, 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 necessarily talk bad about it. I think what we're typically doing when we use that line is we're trying to say this is my point of view. When we say my truth, your truth, what we're typically doing is beginning to separate the fact that there is something that is a mooring for us to come to. So you have your truth, I have my truth. That separates more than it does unite. And so what Paul does here is interesting. He He uses the word foolish and ignorant as no small thing. He's talking about what foolishness really is. Uh, one of the things that's out right now, I saw. I read an article not too long about this, uh, about the change in news and what news is like. It's not hard for many of us to understand it. An article about that, that news has changed, you know, clickbait and those kind of things that really capture us and, and give us uh, false ideas of maybe we read a couple lines and feel as though we're experts on things. But that... that what used to be considered te- this article was talking about telling the news or reporting the news has become moved from that to buying readers. So essentially, news now has gone out in order to buy or capture you, rather than saying, "Hey, here's something you need to know." It's, "Hey, we we want you," because isn't that what clickbait typically is? Isn't that what m- so much of news is? In fact, there was a there was a clickbait um, uh, joke played. Uh, gosh, it was. A couple of years ago, uh, it, was, it said, hey, click here to read about and it was some massive political headline. And it got thousands of clicks. And what it did when it went to this is said, you clicked here because you thought this, this is actually not true at all. And this says that maybe you might wanna think about <laughs> what you click on when you go on the internet. Isn't that what we typically do? I know I do it. We all have our little news thing on our iPhone or whatever phone you have that reports the news and it gives us the same circles, the same articles, the same viewpoint that we typically have, right? Believing experts often say that we as a culture, more than ever before, read very little content and believe that we're higher experts on things. That's us as a culture. Because we like this, the tidbits. We like the clickbait. And what it's created so much is so much that's bolstered our own view. And it's insulated us into little digital tribes, as they say. How do, we begin to, how do we begin to look at what that really means? It's interesting. When he says foolish and ignorant, there are a number of ways that that's used in the Bible. Particularly in Hebrews. You know, Proverbs talks about what's wise and what's foolish. Number of ways that the word fool is used, you can say, what kind of foolishness is this? This is the one that's called e-will. It's called a a stupidity or a stubbornness. In other words, this is the kind of people that when, uh, and you all know this, when your mom said, hey, you really need to do this, you're like, yeah, mom, I got it. That's this kind of foolishness. Yeah, I know. Don't we all feel that way? Not just with our moms, maybe with a spouse maybe with a friend, a co-worker, the people that we want to bolster our opinion on. And look, he even draws out two people, Hymenius and Philetus. If we thought this was anything but relational, it is very relational. In fact, he may draw out and he may point out, we don't know much about Philetus, but Hymenius is spoken of a number of times in the Bible in little tidbits. And Paul seems to go back to this person over and over to try and correct them. To say you're swerving because they're upsetting people by saying the resurrection hasn't happened. They're taking everything about the, the, the full tenet of the, goth, the good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. It's saying the resurrection hasn't happened. What he's saying is not Jesus' resurrection, or already happened, sorry, that the resurrection has already happened. He's saying, okay, Jesus raised from the dead. He's not talking about that. He's talking about when Jesus comes again that those who are followers of him are going to rise again and so to them all the hearers Hymenaeus and Philetus are saying you missed it so sorry you know when we come to the table and you hear us say proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again when we say that they're saying "Oh, he's come again and everybody else is resurrected we got to kind of work harder you see what that does you can be a Christian, you can do that, but, uh, but you, you kind of missed out on the reality of what's happening. They're taking the truth and, and twisting it and they're ruining the faith. They're taking it and they're, and they're destroying people by that. Imagine if we were to miss out on what God has done. See, nobody knows when when Jesus is going to return. And nobody knows when, how that's, we know by a lot of things how we will raise again from the dead. I know that's even a crazy thing. I was reading, I was listening to a sermon by one of my favorite people, Brian Habig. And he was saying, he was at a coffee shop talking to somebody and he was talking about resurrection and last days. And over the, the person's, Shoulder that he was talking to, he saw somebody, he could tell they were listening in on their conversation and they were raising their cup to their mouth to drink and they just stopped and jerked after he said, we're going to raise again from the dead and they're almost as if to say, wait, are you serious about that? Like, people think this way. See, what hope do we have if we don't have a hope that is put into someone else? And how hard would it be? Wouldn't it ruin your faith? ruin the truth. If you were to hear, now you you missed out. You got to work a little harder. You got to get there. You'll get there. Because see, at the heart of this isn't just words. It's the well where it comes out of. Chapter three, verses one through seven talks all about this. It's not just the false words or the false truth. It's the false loves. It says, but understand this, in the last day there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. And then Paul gives this litany of things, which we don't have time to go into. It would be a great study. Good thing for us to read together this week, right? You're like, great, thanks. It's encouraging. But we need to be aware of it, right? What are the, Look, talk about the characterizations of being brought out, right? These These significant things. He's talking about lover of self. And this is what he's getting at. He's saying there's a difference between loving self and loving God. Isn't it out of the well of the heart where all the the tongue being the bucket draws out all the language that we speak? Isn't that where it comes from? What do we really love? What do we really care about? Do we love ourselves or we do we love the Lord? And how do we see that? This is a good list for us to go, hey, I need to, I need to look at my characterization, not only of everyone else and say, they're this, they're that, but myself. Turn the mirror on myself. I love how Martin Luther, the reformer said this in uh, the 16th century. He said, if we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us and is pleased with us, Or if we presumptuously expect to please him only through and after our works, then it is all pure deception outwardly, honoring God. Notice, remember what he says here? Like fake godliness here? Remember this? Those who have appearance of godliness? Martin Luther goes on to say, he says but then uh, expect, presumptuously expect to please him only through or after our works, then it is all pure deception, outwardly honoring God, but inwardly setting up self as a false savior. This is where idolatry comes from. And it's not just little things in the Bible you think of like little tokens. But what is anything? It was through those which we made self. It's through idolatry that you, you, you think you can make yourself something. See, anything, you can make anything an idol. But really what an idol does is it curves your love back in on yourself. Notice some of these things in here are things twisted, right? Lovers of money. Well, money's a good thing. But we, how much do we love that? How much do we reorder who's that? And what is interesting that Tim Keller said that um, he calls idols pickpockets. That what they're really doing is they're pickpocketing your love. And you really don't notice until it's gone. I remember backpacking through Florence, Italy uh, years ago with two of my good friends. And uh, I remember <clears throat> um, how I was getting pickpocketed. And how silently, and I didn't even know it. And one of my friends caught the person. Somehow we actually caught him and I got to talk to this person face-to-face. Isn't that strange? To actually see the person. Okay, at, they're trying to pickpocket you and then you have a conversation with them. My buddies were like, why are you trying to talk to this guy? Like, We need to see our pickpockets face-to-face. And we need to know what are the things that we worship that are secretly, subversively taking away your true love. Here's what's fascinating about Ephesus. Do you know Ephesus is talking about not just here, but in the very last book of the Bible, which many of you may be like, I avoid that book called Revelation. Not Revelations, but Revelation. It's a great book. In fact, it's my probably favorite book to preach through because it's so descriptive and imaginative of what we need to understand. And here's what is said about Ephesus. In chapter 2 of Revelation, it talks about this church. And it actually uses Revelation as the first church to talk about on their struggles. And it says this, I know your works, your toil, and you are patient, endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Exactly what we're talking about. Rooting out all the false teaching, all the things that are coming in. And I know that you're enduring this, but I have this against you. It's one thing, that you have have abandoned the love that you had at first. You are genuine, you've worked hard, you've thought through these things, but you've abandoned your first love. That is the thing that God has against the church at Ephesus. And notice what Paul is talking about here. What brings us back? What brings us back from a deficient love of putting these things in place to to the Lord himself? What what does that? First one is in chapter two, verse 15. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best. It sounds like, oh, do your best to get your approval before God. But what he's actually getting at here is very, very key to all of our words and all of our love. Where do we go to try and and be approved? He's not saying you go to God and hope he approves you. He's going to God because he approves you. Because when you do work for him, when your heart is geared towards who's the first love, you're reminded of who loves you. Isn't it true that there's everything else that we go to to try and find approval of? Isn't that what we're working for? Notice he even uses the language of work. We're going to get into that even more next week. Come back next week. Join in next week. But the approval, right? We, we, we want someone to give us that approval. We, want the, we long for it in every way, vocationally, socially, every way. And the ultimate approval we want is from God. This is what he's saying. If you go to him for that, you can live in light of it. It reveals your first love. It says, if your first love is that, then you can understand every other love that you have in your life. It's not saying you can't love other things. That's what we typically do. We think, oh gosh, I've got to not love anything else. No, 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 no. He's saying you have to make sense of all the loves in your life through God. Otherwise, you're doing it through something else, and it's going to leave you deficient. And the second thing here is this. The second thing here is anticipation. I don't know if you noticed it in this, but he says this in the beginning of verse one of chapter three. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Anytime, I don't know about you, if you read last days, you may be like, okay, that's that. Is that like somebody who stands on the corner with a sign? It's kind of like, last days are coming. Get ready. But you know what? They they celebrated the last days. You know what the last days meant? It was the time period between when Jesus first came and ascended into heaven <clears throat> and the tension of that was their anticipation. Not just living approved but anticipating that God is going to return. See, some of what is so deeply encouraging and gets to the heart of what we really love, say, live for, is that sometimes we're actually thinking this is the best it gets. It's like Jack Nicholson in that movie a long time ago. It as good as it gets. He walks into a room of his psychologist's office and he screams at the top of his lungs. Everybody's sitting in the waiting room. He goes, what if this is as good as it gets? And sometimes that's what we feel. But this table reminds us the complete opposite of that and how we can live differently. Because it's at this table that we actually know that we're proclaiming. What we're proclaiming the Lord's death. There's something we proclaim. There's something, words that are spoken. And then what do we also? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And if he has come once and we proclaim the truth of that good news that is real, then we can live in anticipation, knowing that what brings hope to all the brokenness around us? It's not the fact that we can give good words. It's that the good news is true and it's not done yet. And we can bring that good news to everyone around us. That's what builds up. That's how we oppose what tears down. Because this kingdom tore down whom? Jesus got torn down himself. Whose words were shouted at this one on the cross? And yet he did not open his mouth, it says in Isaiah. It says he took every insult, every spit to the face. Can you imagine being spit in the face after you have just told everyone of the good news and yet he did not open his mouth because it was all about him bringing that good word to all the words of your life and for him to be torn down so that you might be built up in his body that is in Jesus.